Thank you, Dad, for your testimony, Mr. Edward Shin. Um, how good is our Lord, how faithful is our God to uh, hear our prayers and answer in His perfect time. I remember being six years old, my grandparents telling me that um, my dad is coming to get us, to take us back to the States. And I'd never seen my dad before. I remember seeing him for the first time, being very scared how he looked at that time. I remember instantly um, attaching to him, clinging to him, loving him, and uh, wanting nothing as a young boy would, just to love his dad and please his dad. So throughout my life, I wanted to do things that would uh, please him. And uh, when I told him that I'm following the Lord and going into ministry, he was very angry, to say the least. And... um, you know, he told me he was not pleased with me and uh, that, you know, if I, that I should be a good son. And I remember telling him, the way for me to be a good son is by following Christ. And uh, if I follow Christ, it guarantees that I'll be a good son to him. So, uh, a few years after that, I remember my dad telling me that I'm a good son by following Christ. And to have him come this morning and to give his salvation testimony, it is truly a work of God's sovereign grace. And uh, we rejoice together as believers because our God is glorified as He uh, reveals His glory in saving all who would trust in Him. Uh, I ask you to continue to pray for, for Him, that He would grow in His walk with Christ, and also that you would continue to pray for those uh, your family members, your relatives, your neighbors, your friends who do not know Christ. Our God is a personal God. He listens to our prayers. And the prayers of His children, uh, He hears the prayers of His children and He will answer. And may uh, His testimony be an encouragement to you. Well, there's so much I want to say, but really we're here to study the Word of God. So let's open our Bibles together to the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. We'll just read up to, we'll read the whole passage um, this morning. John, chapter 17, verses 6 through 19. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, 
And these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the word, world has hated them, because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Well, we've been going verse by verse through our Lord's high priestly prayer. The Mount Everest of the Gospel of John, if not the whole New Testament or the whole Bible. He refined our Lord on the eve of His death in the privacy with His disciples, praying to the Father. His last petition, the only recorded prayer found in the Scriptures. In verses 1-5, through five, we discover that Christ began by praying for Himself. He bared open His heart and what came out was His passion for God's glory. And that was his earnest desire, singular desire on the eve of his death. He did not pray to be spared from the death. He did not pray for anything else that was centered upon himself. He prayed that God might be glorified through the Father glorifying him. In verses 6 through 19, our Lord shifts his focus and he prays for the 11 men that are with him. The 11 apostles, 11 disciples. From verses 6 through 19, he specifically is praying for the apostles. It is not until verse 20 that he turns his attention towards us, the New Testament church, and prays for us. We studied last week how Christ, before praying for the apostles, like a lawyer almost, he um, presented to the Father four reasons why the Father must answer His prayers for the apostles. Four reasons why He is praying. Four reasons why the Father must answer His prayers. The first reason is, verse 6, they have kept God's Word. The whole world, when Christ manifested God's character, God's attributes, God's glory, the world rejected Christ and the God that was revealed through Christ, they hated the Father that Christ represented. God of holiness, God of justice and love, they would have none of it. Yet these 11 men received that revelation and they held on to it. Therefore Christ said, O oh Lord, O oh Father, please answer my prayers on their behalf. The second reason why His prayers must be answered is that He... He, he declares that they belong to the Father. Seven times in this passage, he repeats that phrase, You gave them to me. You gave them to me. Yours they were, and we are one. Therefore, they belong to you. So, Father, for your own sake, for the sake of your own possession, answer my prayers. Third reason, because God's glory is at stake. Verse 10, I am glorified in them. Father, my glory is at stake. Therefore, answer my cries. And finally, verse 18. The fourth reason is because of their task. Just as you have sent me into the world, so I send them. 
these apostles would be sent into the world to herald the gospel of, of saving grace. Therefore, Christ pleads that he, the Father would answer his prayers. These four reasons are instructive for us because they encourage us and they teach us why we ought to pray for one another. These same reasons are given to us that why we ought to petition for one another's behalf. And then he goes on to pray for the apostles. Essentially, he prays just for two things. His desire, his intercession for the apostles is just twofold. First is to keep. Second is to sanctify. He prays to the Father, verse 11, that the Father might keep them. And then down in verse 17, that the Father might sanctify them. Our Lord's prayer for the apostles, very simple. Keep and sanctify. Before we get to the first prayer, that the Father would keep them, let us remember that it is an audible prayer. That Christ could have very well prayed this prayer in the secrecy of His heart. He could have just prayed it in His mind. But He articulated it in words and expressed them so that His disciples might hear and be encouraged. Therefore, it's appropriate for us that we read and study this prayer. Secondly, we must remember that it is an occasional prayer prompted by a time-sensitive truth known by Christ. This prayer is an occasional prayer prompted by a time-sensitive truth known by Christ. It was revealed to the disciples, but the disciples were cloudy, clouded in their understanding. They really didn't understand what Christ was telling them, although He told them repeatedly. This is significant for us, the timing of this prayer. In John 13:1, before the feast of the Passover, before the Lord washed the feet of the disciples, Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world and to go to the Father. John 13:3, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into His hands and that he, was, he had come from God and that He was going back to God. John 16:28, He told them, Now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Our Lord knew this. The time was short. It was time for His departure. He told the disciples, and that is what prompted Him to pray this prayer at this time. And it's instructive for us to understand why He prays these things. So in light of His departure, He prays for His eleven apostles. And not just the present timing, He prays for them because of what lies ahead. Because of what lies ahead in their future. John 16.33 Christ prophesied, In this world, you will have tribulation. Verse 11, He told them, I am leaving you in this world. He had previously said, In this world, you will have tribulation, you will have hardship, you will have trials, you will have persecutions. Left behind in the world, our Lord knew that they would face nothing but open hostility and opposition. Mark 13, 13, all men will hate you because of me. Luke 6, 22, 
Blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, reject you, insult you because of the Son of Man. Luke 21.17 again, Christ declared, All men will hate you because of me. Christ, Christ prophesied it, predicted it for the apostles, and that's exactly what happened. Church tradition, church history tells us that including Matthias and the Apostle Paul, 13 apostles, 12, 12 of them, except for the Apostle John, suffered martyrdom. They died for their faith. Church history tells us that Peter was crucified upside down. That James the Just, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was thrown over a hundred feet down from the southeast pinnacle of the temple when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. When they came upon his body and found out that James the Just was not dead, they beat him, de- they beat him to death with clubs. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to, to Asia and modern-day Turkey. He was flayed to death by a whip. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia and was killed by a sword. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Tradition tells us that he was crucified in a spread eagle position, hence the St. Andrew's Cross of Scotland. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India as he was planting Christ's church there. And the Apostle Paul, we know, was imprisoned several times, was beaten several times. And after one lengthy imprisonment under the reign of Emperor Nero in AD 67, he was beheaded all alone, all by himself. This was no surprise to Jesus. As he was praying for the apostles, he looked them in their eyes and he knew what awaited them. That hardships and sufferings lie in wait for them. And that for each one of them, they will be tempted to surrender to the threat of evil. They'll be tempted to quit, even deny the faith and turn away. Therefore, he prays for them. And he prays just two things. And his prayer, first prayer is found in verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Christ begins his prayer by saying, I am no longer in the world, meaning my departure is soon. I am leaving. But they are in the world. He will leave them behind. He will leave them behind. You know, God could have, Christ could have taken them with Him when He departed. In fact, He could do that with us. Every time someone becomes a Christian, He takes us to heaven. Isn't that what we prayed? Especially when we're young in the faith. We first become Christians and we love the Lord. And prayer is so sweet. Communion with Christ is so joyous. We long, so long to be with the Lord. And we see this world and all the sins and temptations and evil that's in the world. And I'm sure you pray, Lord, take me with you. Lord, I so want to be with you. Why, why did you leave me down here while you were in heaven? Well, Christ did this for His purposes. 
chief among them is that he gets more glory by leaving us here. He knew that by leaving the apostles on the earth, he will receive more glory. And he knows now that we can glorify him more on earth than we can in heaven at this moment. Why is that? It's because light must shine in the darkness. We turn our lights on at night. We never turn our lights in the middle of the day when the sun is shining brightly into our rooms. Light shining in light is useless. Light must shine in darkness. That is why Christ left the apostles and that is why Christ has left us with our family members with our current friends, with our co-workers, with our fellow students in your universities or in your relatives. Why did God put you in such a place so that you might shine your light? Matthew 5.14 You are the light of the world. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give praise to your Father in heaven. Peter repeats that very same thing in 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God and day He visits us. Christ left them behind. Christ leaves us behind that we might live righteous lives in this world. Not running away from the world. Not running away from darkness, but going into darkness and shining our light that they might see the doctrine of our God Savior adorned by us. And they might in turn trust in Christ and be saved. Therefore, Christ declares He has left them behind And then he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Look at those two words, your name. Verse 11, Christ says, your name. Verse 12, your name. Go back a few verses. Verse 6, your name. Three times Christ speaks of God's name in a matter of few verses. Look back at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Christ revealed God's character, attributes. God gave them the true knowledge of God. And then go down to verse 12 actually. And he said, while he was with them, he kept them in your name. He continues, I have guarded them. I have guarded them. He's saying, Father, when I was on the earth, I revealed your name, who you truly are, your righteousness, your holiness, your love, your mercy to these apostles, and I kept them. I guarded them. Father, I'm leaving now. Therefore, Holy Father, verse 11. I entrust them to you. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. The verb there, keep, is the first imperative mood verb in this whole passage. 
It is an imperative request. It is a petition. It is, please keep them in your name. I urge you, I beg of you, keep these men in your name. Do not lose them. Do not forsake. Do not abandon. Keep them within your character, within your truth, within eternal life, which is the knowledge of the one true God. What a precious prayer that our Lord makes on behalf of these apostles and an application He makes for all of us. We see how Christ loved these men. Christ valued these men. And we see in this prayer how Christ values us. We see that great transaction here. Um, the Father gives a portion of God, portion God's people to Christ. And Christ lives a perfect life, dies on the cross, and He gives them, manifests them the name of God, and He forgives them of all their sins and saves them. And as He departs, because of His love for the Father, He entrusts the people back to the Father. What a marvelous truth. This ought to endear Him to our hearts. It tells, this tells us that we are the possessions of both God the Father and Jesus Christ. That we belong to the Father and to Christ. That is the positive aspect of God's prayer. The negative aspect is down in verse 15. Father, keep them in your name. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. So Father, while you keep them, care for them, protect them, at the same time, keep them from evil. Keep them from the evil one. That's a very uh, important prayer, insightful prayer for us to understand. His prayer is not that we would be taken out of the world. His prayer is that we should remain in the world without becoming contaminated by it. That we should be in the world, but not of the world. And people might say, how can we make sense of that? How does that happen? We see Christ modeling that for us perfectly in His life. In Matthew eleven nineteen, people called Him a friend of sinners. He was comfortable with sinners. Because He loved people, you know, He would hang out and dine with them. He would intermingle with them. He would involve in social exchange with them. In the New Testament times, the religious considered the non-believers so offensive to God that they refused to, let alone enter their homes, let alone talk to them or touch them or have a meal with them. But Christ had no qualms about going in to a tax collector's home, talking to a Gentile, having a prostitute wash his feet with her hair. He had no qualms about that. In fact, he loved them so much, he was immersed in their lives. So much so, the Pharisees called him a friend of sinners. So he was in this world, as we are called into the world. At the same time, he was separate from sinners. He was separate from sinners. 
Hebrews 7.26, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Consider those adjectives. Christ is described as holy, as innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. So though he was involved in the world, in the worldly affairs, he himself did not engage in sinful activities. He did not conform to sin and sinners. And that is his prayer for us, that we would be wholly kept in the name of the Father. At the same time, we would be kept from evil. We would, be, um, we would have a holy worldliness. A holy worldliness. We will be in the world while not of it. And I like what John Stott said. We are to be like a rose blooming in the middle of winter or a lily growing on a dung heap. A lily growing on a dung heap. Christ's first prayer is that the Father would keep the apostles, keep the disciples keep them from evil, and the purpose, the result is found in the last clause, last phrase of verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one. That they may be one even as we are one. Now consider that this is not Christ's prayer. Christ is not praying for the unity of of Christians. Unity is a result of being kept in the Father's name and being kept from evil. Unity is the result of that. So when any Christian strays or deviates from God's name, either to the left or to the right, in terms of God's character, God's attributes, or God's revelation, unity is not possible. When any Christian conforms and participates with an evil, to that degree, unity is not possible because unity is the result of believers being kept in the Father's name and avoiding evil. That is what Christ is talking about. He's not talking about horizontal unity. Uh, He's not talking about external, uh, denominational, ecclesiastical unity. He's not talking about the sentimental unity that... So many propose in the church today where we set aside Scripture, we set aside the Bible and theology and what the Word of God says, and we all hold each other's hands and, and sing praise songs and feel good about each other. That's not what Christ is saying. No, He's talking about unity in terms of our knowledge of God and unity in terms of our separateness, holiness apart from sin, apart from evil. It is a oneness which is an outcome, not of human agreement or effort, but a oneness that comes out of divine power. Now, First Timothy 4.16, a simple formula, right doctrine, right life. Right doctrine, right life. As Christians, we want to have unity. We love peace. I want to be united with every believer here at Cornerstone and the universal church. Nothing personal. When I speak against other churches, Christians, or movements, I love everybody. I want unity. I want peace. But not at the expense of doctrine. Not at the expense of right life. 
If they will agree with Scripture, I agree with them, I will love them wholeheartedly. If they would affirm right life according to the Scripture, I am united with them as they are with me. But to anyone, and myself included, that departs from that, unity is not possible. And we see that in Galatians. When the Apostle Peter, right, the rock of the church in a sense, when he deviated from salvation by faith alone and partnered with Judaizers who wanted to add the laws of the Old Testament as a requirement for a person to be saved, Apostle Paul didn't say, I want unity with Peter, so I will set aside this doctrine for the sake of peace. No, Paul went to Peter in front of everybody and publicly confronted Peter and rebuked him to his face. Why? Because Christ's prayer is that unity comes out as a result of being in the Father's name and not conforming to sin, not conforming to evil. And that is the reality. That is the truth even to this day. That there are believers with whom we might have great disagreements about in the secondary tangential issues of the Christian life. But there is such unity with them because we agree on who God is, what He has done, and what He requires of us. I, I, I promise you, there are believers where I disagree on so many points of Scripture, even so many points of, of, of how to live life in this world, but because we agree on who God is, what God has done, what God requires... There is tremendous unity, tremendous like-mindedness because our unity is not manufactured by man but is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We will spend a lot more time because Christ prays for this unity directly for us. Believers will believe through the apostles, verses 20 through 23. We'll spend a whole sermon just on what it means to be united as Christians. So for now, we will move on. Verse 12, it's the last part. Christ said, While I was with them, I kept them, I guarded them. Not one of them has been lost except the son of perdition, the son of destruction. Now that's a problem verse right there, verse 12. Does this tell us Christ is not all powerful? You know, Christ, you know, he almost had a perfect record, 12 for 12. But he lost one game. He lost one fight. He tried to hold on to all, but Judas was too strong, or Satan was too strong. He couldn't hold on to Judas. Does this weaken the power and the authority of the words of God, words of Christ? No, Christ tells us at the end, the son of destruction being lost is in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Verse 12c that the scripture might be fulfilled. From the beginning, Christ knew Judas is the son of destruction. Because of his love for Judas, he cared for him. He taught him the word of God. But from the beginning, he knew the word of God has prophesied that this man will betray the Lord and be separate and be lost from him. John 6.66 Let me give you a brief background. In that chapter, we studied it maybe three years ago. 
our Lord to the masses, to the crowds, and to the disciples that are gathered around Him, gave them tough teaching. Gave them difficult teaching. He relayed to them the demands of discipleship. And He said, unless you eat of my flesh and drink my blood, you have no partnership with me. Meaning, our unity was, must be essential unity. Wholehearted unity must be unity that is based upon the cross of Christ, upon His death and His resurrection. The people that were listening to Him, they loved the bread that He had just fed them. They loved the fish they had just eaten. When they heard the demands of discipleship, it was too difficult for them. They were not willing to wholeheartedly give their lives over to Christ. So a mass exodus occurred, where a great majority of them started to Depart and leave Christ. In John 6.66, you know, it's appropriate, those numbers described, contain this verse. 6.66, From this time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him. From this time on, many of them apostatized and went into the world. Our Lord asked Peter, Peter, do you want to leave too? Peter, our Lord asked the twelve, and Pete, our, our Lord asked the twelve, do you all want to leave as well? Simon Peter, as a spokesperson, as the apostle, said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. As a spokesman, he declared what they all believed. We believe in you. You are the one who has come from the Father. Our Lord responded, Peter, you're not speaking for all of them. You're not speaking for all twelve. Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. In Psalm 41.9, David prophesied concerning the Messiah that a close friend whom he trusted, whom he with whom shared bread, will lift up his heel against the Messiah. In John 13, Christ pointed to this prophecy and He said, I am not referring to all of you. John 13:18. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the Scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am He. He, he prophesied that one of you will betray. And He reveals it here, that it's Judas. So that when they discover that Judas had betrayed Christ... This would not cause them to weaken in their faith in Christ, cause them to doubt the power and the authority of the Messiah, but it would confirm all the more their faith in Christ because this was done in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Christ was not deceived by Judas. It was ordained by God, under God's sovereignty, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. And when the believers, disciples saw it, it did not shake them. It confirmed their faith. Well, to close our time, just two closing thoughts from our passage this morning. First closing thought is, again, going back to the five biblical points of the Bible. In verse 2, we 
we learn that election is a holy biblical teaching. That there is a portion of people chosen by God that belongs to God. In verse 2, we learn particular atonement, limited atonement, particular redemption, saying that Christ's purpose was never to save everybody and that He is a slave to man's free will. No, verse 2 tells us that He has authority over all, but His intention was always to save the portion, the few, the elect that God had given to Him. In verse 11, we find the doctrine of the perseverance of believers. Perseverance of believers. Or better put, preservation of the saints. Preservation of the saints. Now we need to remember who is praying here. You know, when I was praying for my dad, I had no idea. I prayed by faith. But I know who I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I have no right to demand that my father save my dad. I cannot make that a condition. God, I will serve you if you do this. If you save my dad, you know, if you do this for me, do that, then I will serve you. I know who I am. We all do. I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. We, we ask humbly and it's up to the Lord's will. May His will be done. But Jesus praying, He's not a sinner. He's not saved by grace. He is God. So when Christ declares truth, it is not a wish, it's not a hope in our, our understanding, vernacular understanding of hope, but it is a stated will of God. So when Christ prayed, Father, keep them in your name, there was no uncertainty of these men's future. This means that they will be kept in the power of God's name. That prayer, once Christ uttered it, is reality. Christ's prayers are effectual. They're efficacious. They are potent. They are powerful. They reveal reality. They reveal the way it is. Christ praying for them that God would keep them, means that God will keep them to the end. John 10, 27-30 My sheep hear My voice. I know them. They follow Me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We must maintain a high view of God. We must uphold God and all His glory, all His power and might. And that those people that God has in His hands, we must not in any way rob God of His power and say God is not powerful to keep His people safe. We must agree with Scripture. No matter what we see, what we experience, what we observe in the church today, we must say true believers, the true elect, cannot be snatched out of the Father's hand. And as revealed by Christ's prayer here in John 17, Jesus prayed that the Father would keep 
the disciples, and that is exactly what happened. And the application applies to us. Eternal security. That if you are a Christian, we are safe in God's hands. We need not fear. We need not be anxious. Because the Almighty God has us in His hand. We must be confirmed and assured and confident in our faith, knowing that Christ prayed for us and prays for us and His will is clear that He will not lose any of His own. Second closing thought that I want you to consider is um, when our Lord kept the disciples during His earthly ministry, when He guarded them, consider that He did not do this supernaturally. You know, quote, end quote. He did not do this in supernatural means. He kept the disciples. He guarded them. He protected them through ordinary means. How did He, think about this, how did He protect, keep, guard the disciples? He did it the way parents do to their children. Christ taught them the Word of God. Christ warned them against sin. Christ corrected them when they erred. Christ protected them by His presence. Christ prayed for them. Christ modeled truth. That's how He kept them and guarded them. When a disciple physically left Christ, he was not able to keep them, guard them, protect them. Because He used ordinary means. Christ is gone now. We are under the stewardship, the guardianship of the Holy Spirit. And the question now is, now that the Father is keeping us, how does the Father keep us, Christians? How does the Father guard us and care for us? It is not supernaturally. It is not immediately, directly to our heart, to our souls where He zaps us and He keeps us uh, in, his wor- in His name. God the Father, I contend, continues to use ordinary means to keep His people safe. And chief among His ordinary means is the local church. Is the local church birthed by the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit has given the local church teachers and pastors who will teach and shepherd God's people. And the church, the body of Christ, keeps God's people safe in His name and keeps them from evil. Right? Because what does the church do? Church is the body of Christ. So the church, we teach the Word of God. We warn believers, don't make that decision. Don't go there. Don't think that way. Don't do this. Because only harm will come through that decision. We, re- we correct and rebuke those who have strayed. We model Christ-likeness to our people so that they might learn from one another. We pray for one another and keep each other accountable. This is God's way, God's means of keeping the flock. And just as if disciples left Christ's presence, they were no longer kept by Him, likewise, when believers leave the church, leave God's guardianship and protection to the local church to that degree, 
they are failing to be kept in God's name, kept from evil. Does that make sense? This is how God protects the flock, builds up the flock, and keeps the flock. To the degree you don't share with the church, to the degree you don't open up to your shepherds, you don't come under their teaching, come under their leadership, to that degree you are not protected, you are not safe, you are not covered. And if you decide, I want to offend for myself, I'm a Christian, I know the Bible, I have the Holy Spirit, I'm going to take care of myself and decide what I'm going to do and choose my own church as according to what I see fit, to that degree, you are parting from God's means of keeping you safe, keeping you in His will. I plead with you as your shepherd, as your servant, to be kept in the Father's name by submitting to the means that God has ordained, the local church, by listening to the Word of God that is taught in the church, by heeding the warnings that we give out, by opening your hearts when we correct and rebuke, that praying with us for one another and modeling Christ-likeness to one another so that we might continue in the name of our Father. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank You. God, I thank You, first of all, for my dad. Thank You for the sovereign work that You've done in his heart, opening his eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Lord, I consider it an undeserved miracle that You would unite us in Calvary, that You would bring that and myself and our church together through Christ. Lord, I do pray that you continue to uh, grant him much grace, O oh God, to draw near to you. O oh Lord, that he would hunger after the Word of God and thirst for pure milk of God's Word. And he digests the Scriptures, Lord, that you will make him into a mighty, powerful, holy man of God. And that you would bring much glory to yourself through his life. And that he would be in the world, the world of our relatives and friends and neighbors, and you would um, use him, O oh God, to spread your fame and to make your glory known so that many would come and see his changed life and the fruit that's been uh, produced in his life. And they would declare and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Oh God, we thank you for um, allowing us to study Christ's prayer for the apostles and in turn, his prayer for us. You did not abandon us, orphan us, left us to fend for ourselves. Lord, you have entrusted us to the stewardship of the Father and he is and he has answered that prayer and he has given us the church, the body of Christ in which through your word, through the Holy Spirit, Lord, you continue to care, protect and guide and lead your people. 
O Lord, may your people run to your name that is as a strong tower and the protection of the word of God. May your people flourish in your church so that we would continue to contend for the gospel as one man in this world shining your light in darkness. O Lord, um, may this day through uh, the testimony and through the word of God uh, compel us to all the more pray and all the more obey your scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.